Welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. I'm your host, Joachim Axon. Episode 27. This week in our prayers, show. Joe is a pillar of our community, and uh, last week he was in a motorcycle accident and broke his leg. So, um, you know. Episode 15, Tangerine with Show Scheller. If there's anything you can do for show, you know, do it for show. Maybe pass by his house, drop off a bottle of wine. I don't know. Also, this episode is brought to you by Two and a Half Happy Barbers at 502 Northeast 65th Street on your way to Green Lake. Uh, as I'm saying that, it's like, why is it called Two and a Half Happy Barbers? I don't know. There's only one guy in there. There's only Scott in there, you know. And I'm going to be honest with you, Scott is kind of struggling right now. You know, the government shut him down, coronavirus. He was shut down for three, four months. And then when he could reopen, you know, it was hard to get back there. And he was closed for another month. And he's been open since July 1st. And and it's not going great, you know. So if you need a haircut, I mean, go, go get a haircut because it's... I just said show is a pillar of our community, but man, Scott is a real pillar of our community, like no one else. Because you go in there and you can tell that Scott is from, I mean, he's from a different era, you know? You go in there and he's got a, <clears throat> excuse me, he's got a frigadier from the 1940s right there in the corner and it's full of Bud Light and Squirt. And while you're waiting for a haircut, you can just have as many of those crispy boys as you want and... And he'll set you straight, you know. I've gone in there many times feeling kind of lopsided and he, you know. He's a real big brother figure to anyone who sits down in that chair. And last time I was in there, a couple of weeks ago, when I sat down, I could tell that for the first time he needed a big brother, you know. And it's, it's actually a kind of terrible thing to see. Terrifying, honestly. So, I mean, if you need a haircut, go in there, man. Two and a half happy barbers. $26. That's it. No wait. Takes everyone's temperatures. All right, what else? What to talk about? You know, one thing that I have noticed with the podcast is that whenever I do an interview and I open it up, whenever it gets opened up, to where we're allowed to talk about whatever every single episode we end up talking about the coronavirus and I'm not trying to talk about the coronavirus you know but it happens every single interview and every single time it's totally uninteresting to listen to but it's just what the world is right now that there's no way to there's no way for two people to if you put two people together and they have something that they need to talk about, once they've talked about that and once they're easing their way into being allowed to talk about whatever, during that easing, you always have to have a conversation about the coronavirus. And whatever you know, whatever you read this week about it all. And it's so uninteresting, but you have to do it. It's like you have to get through that. To be able to relax. Otherwise, it's like this huge unaddressed thing. And you can't have that. So every single time I do an interview, we talk about the coronavirus for 10 minutes. And then every single time I edit the episodes, I just edit that out. Because it's completely meaningless. And also, it doesn't age very well. 
Um, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird little pattern. What else is there to talk about? You know, there is this one thing that I've been wanting to talk about because I've been thinking about it. But it's a very abstract thing. And it's a little bit of a tacky area of conversation like this. When I was eight years old, I had, when I was a young kid like that, I remember having these experiences where I couldn't sleep at night and I'm laying in my bed. I'm laying in bed and I just felt present. I was just there. And I looked up into the ceiling and my ceiling was, at my mom's house, it was wooden boards. Like the cheapest kind of pine shit wood that you can imagine. Varnished with some sort of some sort of varnish that made it look kind of reddish. It was just like um, narrow wooden boards with lots of knots. You know, like wherever there was a branch, you cut it lengthwise, and now there's a black knot there. So <clears throat> I kind of feel like expensive wood is has fewer knots or interesting-looking knots. Like bird's eye, there's these specific kinds of patterns of knots that are naturally occurring that are really rare that can make the wood really expensive, but you take the cheapest kind of pine and, man, it's just like a bunch of black knots. And so I'm laying there and I'm really focused on the ceiling and I just have this experience of being there in the now. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't have a language for it. I didn't have a framework to understand it. I didn't have any concepts. It was just a feeling. And it was an experience that somehow seemed different than my day-to-day -day life. Because normally, you know, when you're an eight-year-old, you're an idiot. Like, you're a little animal. And you're, you're consumed with emotions. And you're super happy. And you're super unhappy. And you're fiending for sugar. And your video games. And whatever, you know. You're just f struggling, trying not to get bullied. And then you're trying to bully someone. And whatever, you know. You're just like there in the experience as this tiny little frantic animal. That's what I was like as an eight-year-old anyway. And then laying there at night, not being able to sleep, it was just a different thing where I wasn't being reactive. I wasn't identified with an emotion. I was just there. And one of the first things I sort of felt about that was that I started feeling like I couldn't really trust or I wasn't sure how much I could trust my memories because I had these memories of doing stuff, but those memories didn't weren't um, tinted with like the feeling of knowing that I was in the moment when that stuff was happening. And that made it sort of feel like it gave it sort of a color of unreality, all these memories. Because I had these memories of doing all this stuff, but it seemed like that had been someone else doing that. Someone who was just a little animal. And then me, I was like this self-aware being, consciousness for the first time. I was just like laying there self-aware. And I don't know. It was a weird feeling and I didn't know how to understand it, but I felt it very clearly. And then, you know, I fall asleep, I wake up, I'm a little animal again, and I'm doing my little animal eight-year-old things, and I go through life and whatever, and a couple of weeks passed, and then the same thing happens again, where I can't sleep, and I'm laying there, and I'm somehow just 
in the moment and I'm not thinking about a bunch of stuff. I'm not obsessing. There's no memories. There's no like onslaught type stream of consciousness that I can't get out of. It's just there and I'm just there in the moment and I'm looking up into the ceiling with the wooden boards and the knots and that's where I'm at. And in that moment, I, it, it, it had a sense of importance to it where I felt like I didn't want to let go of it because it seemed like it, it was this feeling of hyper-realness. It just felt so absolutely real to be there in the moment and to know that this moment is real. And that's kind of the thing I got obsessed with in that moment where it's like, I can really, really, really tell that this moment is real. I am here. I know that with absolute certainty. And then these memories, I don't know that these memories are real. But for some reason, the memory of a month ago laying awake at night, having the same type of feeling, that seemed realer. Of all my memories, that was the memory I, more than any other memory, felt like I could believe in. That I knew, the second time it happened, I, I knew that now at least I've been awake twice. You know, at least I have two two experiences that I can hang on to. Now, I mean, I don't think that makes perfect logical sense because the memory of being present is just another memory. And I don't know that we can trust that in sort of absolute rationality kind of sense. I don't think that we can trust a memory like that more than any other memory, but I wasn't so concerned with that. I just remembered having the feeling in the past and then I had it again. And then it kept happening. You know, every couple of weeks I would lay awake. I would just be there in the now. And I would string together those experiences. I would, each time I was there in the now, I would recall having been in the now a couple of weeks prior. And it gave me this feeling like my life was this sort of solid black space of not being aware. And each time I was laying there awake at night, was like a tiny pinprick in that black surface where a little bit of light would shine through, a little bit of light of awareness, of being awake. And then when it kept happening, it was like there were several punctures to the black space of experience where like there was light shining through here and there and there and there and there. And I don't know. It's just something I felt and I didn't have any concepts. And then so, but it, it sparked some sort of curiosity in me where I wanted to sort of think about that more and understand that more. And I think it led me down a couple of paths that weren't the right path. So I think first, I think it definitely sparked a curiosity in me in about psychedelics. And so maybe there was some experimentation with some psychedelics in my you know youth or whatever. And I don't know that that was really it. I don't know that that really got me to where I wanted to be. And then also, I mean, it was a pretty strong curiosity that I'm talking about here because like when I finished high school, the first thing I did was I go to Lund University and I study philosophy for a year because I felt like that was what it was. Or like I didn't have any better idea of what it was that I was curious about, what I wanted to approach. And I've mentioned this in the past on the podcast that that year of studying philosophy was like, Man, it was a lot of things I didn't give a shit about. And it was a lot of 
like I can only speak to my experience, but that, those were a lot of conversations that I didn't think made so much sense and they weren't very relevant and they didn't have any utility. You know, maybe I just used the word utility, but maybe one of the few things I took away from it was the, the ism of utilitarianism. Like that's a, that's an ism that really makes sense to me where, where you approach something wanting just to maximize the amount of happiness for the most amount of people and minimizing the amount of um, pain, you know, a couple of basic ideas like that. But then there's a couple of things in that sort of year of philosophy that I um, where it sort of seems like they're talking about what I was interested in, because it seems like a conversation about absolute knowledge and absolute rationality. But there was just something about the approach to it that I really didn't vibe with. Really boring books where they've come up with all these names for things and they have a conversation where it's like, what is knowledge? And someone is like, yeah, well, knowledge is a justified true belief where there are three conditions that are met. There's a justification, there's a truth, and there's a belief. You believe it, it happens to be true, and you have a reason for that to be justified. And then someone else comes up with a thing of like, no, but that's not right, because, you know, Bertrand Russell walks into the conversation and is like, no, no, here's a thought experiment for you. Imagine a man who walks into a room and looks at a clock, and the clock says noon, and it's noon, and that's a justified true belief. He looks at the clock. That's a justification for believing that it's noon. It is noon, so it's true. And he believes it, so it's a belief. But here's the thing. The clock is broken. The clock is always saying noon. And it just happens to be noon the moment he looks at it. You know? That means it's not knowledge. Because there's some other condition that's not met. You know? And it's like, what are you guys talking about? Is that interesting? Does that mean anything? Does that have any kind of utility to anyone? Then I get a little bit older, I guess, and somewhere along the path of life, I keep bumping into this these concepts of like mindfulness and meditation. And, and it's interesting because that's kind of where, I don't know, it seems like all, where I'm at right now, it feels like all paths lead to that. Because if you walk into a doctor's office, I think I've spoken to maybe fucking seven doctors in the last 10 years where I've been like, hey, I have a little bit more anxiety than I would like to have. I, I, I'm suffering here from an elevated level of anxiety. Is there anything you could do to help me, Mr. Doctor? And then they maybe give you an SSRI and say, yeah, I mean, this has like a 5% probability of success here, but we can try it. But what they really do every single time is they give you a pamphlet on mindfulness and meditation. Because really that's, that's all they really, um, like no one in the doctor's office is talking about Bertrand Russell, you know? For all the good things that we got out of Eurocentric sort of uh, Western traditions of thought and science, in this space, man, Descartes and I think therefore I am, it was somehow the answer to the wrong question every time. So then instead you end up with mindfulness and meditation. And then I'm also like in the 12-step program, right? I find myself in this recovery thing and, and that's all about mindfulness and meditation. So, so today it feels like everything is um, pointing me towards that. And, and then when you get to the last page of that book, you know, the book you read about mindfulness and meditation, you know, 
what you're really trying to do here is you're trying to go back to the beginning. You're trying to let go of every concept that you have. It's a search for original mind. And that's where for the first time you, I feel like that's what I was interested in, original mind. Because you know what original mind is? It's that mind I had when I was eight years old and I was just laying there and I was just aware and I had no concepts. And it was just like, what is this? Is this where I'm at? So I know that this is true and that's all I know and I'm just sitting here with that. And I think we can say that the, you know, the Asian man on the mountainside with the big earlobes, he knew something else about it. You know, you read this story about like, what is enlightenment? The monk asks the meditation master, what is enlightenment? And the meditation master asks, have you washed your bowl since you had ri ate rice in your bowl? And the monk is like, no, I haven't washed my bowl. And the meditation master is, says, go wash your bowl. And in that moment, the monk is enlightened, you know? Like, that's what it is. It was in ordinary mind. Enlightenment was to be found in ordinary mind. If you can wash your bowl with a sense of presence and let all your concepts melt away and just be there, then you're enlightened. Because I think there's a very egalitarian sort of quality to conversations like this. Everyone has this open space where thoughts happen. And everyone has an intuition and the ability to have thoughts in the space where we think. So everyone has the same right to talk about the most basic questions of like, what is knowledge? And what do I know? And where the fuck am I? Here, we, here you are, you know? And a part of me feels frustrated because I feel like I lost 15 years at some point where 15 years, maybe more. You know, I was eight years old and some curiosity was sparked in me and then no one was there to be like, hey, try some meditation. No one was there with the Sam Harris meditation app that now has a section for meditation for children. You know, no one, when I was eight years old, that's what I wanted and no one gave me that. And then a part of me is frustrated and wants to be like, oh, if I had just grown up in China. But I will tell you though, that in China, maybe more than anywhere else, first of all, Mindfulness and meditation, white people talk about it way more than Chinese people. And in China, in my experience, the whole thing of Buddhism and, and meditation and all that stuff, it is an aesthetic choice more than anything else. Like those guys that walk around with the Buddhist beads and the Buddhist necklace and the, you know, the bracelet and just Buddhist... I, iconography imagery and their clothing and their stuff you know that guy with like a fucking someone sitting lotus on his dashboard some plastic figurine that guy man that's an aesthetic thing that does not go hand in hand with any kind of practice or intention or it has nothing to do with someone wanting to be enlightened strangely strangely enough I think that's true. In my experience, that's how I always saw it, you know? In Asia, you see a lot of, like, <clears throat> I was reading this book called Book of Swindles, which is a book, um, I think it's like 500 years old in translation from Chinese. It's just short stories about people swindling each other, which is, first of all, kind of a funny thing, because 
I don't know. It's easy to walk around in China and feel like it's a low-trust society with a lot of scams everywhere. And it's funny to realize that maybe that's always been the feeling, that even 500 years ago, someone could write a sort of... It's it's a trying to be funny, this book. And um, almost every story is about a monk. It's almost like a monk. Because monks are like the shiftiest characters. Monks are like the... I don't know. Maybe people dressed up as monks are just poor people who need to swindle their way into a bowl of rice. But that's sort of what monks still feel like in China, where you can't trust a monk, and a monk is not... A monk has nothing to do with enlightenment in China. You know, those guys in the, in the nice orange shade of uh, whatever type of robes? You know, those bald guys at the airport? That has nothing to do with enlightenment. So I don't know what it is that I wanted. I don't know where it is that I wanted to grow up where I think that I could have been sort of exposed to something which is what I would have wanted. I don't know. All I know is I, I, I feel like I spent the last 20 years cultivating habits of unhappiness where... The, the, the practice of mindfulness and meditation is a practice of unlearning those habits and just being aware of your thoughts and being aware of when you're just identifying with emotion and maybe how that emotion is negative. I guess all I'm saying is that there is a, a full circle quality to it where um, it started with me... Um, being this little kid, just feeling present and being very interested in that feeling. And then now I finally found someone having the conversation I was interested in. And that conversation is all about having me go back there to when I was eight years old. And um, everything in between was a waste of time. Yeah, but I never, I never lost that... Um, that feeling, it's like I um, remember being 25 years old and going back to Sweden and visiting my mom and going into the room that I used to be my bedroom and they had like renovated it and, and uh, they had painted the ceiling, you know, painted it in a white varnish. So it was no longer like this dark red plain wood. It was like a white primer. And the knots were still sort of shining through because it wasn't really paint. It was just like a tinted, white tinted varnish. But I remember that making a big impression on me because I was like, fuck. The only thing I cared about in that room was the ceiling. Like in the end, that's the only thing that sort of stuck with me that I was still thinking about. Not that that makes any sense, but that's what I, that's what I was thinking about. And it almost made me upset that it was painted. Which is very irrational, but that's what I felt. But then I, then I found what I was looking for somewhere else, I guess. I don't know. Maybe we should just go to the water. Let's just go to the water. Today, we're doing peach apricot.
I mean, until recently, I didn't really know the difference between an ap apricot and a peach and a nectarine and stuff. Then I bought some canned fruit. And man, that is such a guilty pleasure of mine. Like canned peach halves in syrup or like pears and putting that on vanilla ice cream. That's the best. I got one peach and I got one apricot and I realized when I opened the apricot that now I know what the difference is because apricots are, are inferior. So um, I got some peach apricot right here. First of all, this is a good episode because I haven't tried any of these three before. Usually I've had lackadaisically, I've been drinking the stuff that I'm going to try on the pod. But, you know, when you drink it in civilian life, it's not the same as drinking it on the pod. Because drinking it on the pod, you you start implementing the, like, real wine-tasting focus where you think about it. And then it opens up. And you taste things that you didn't taste when you drank it in civilian life. So it's still different, but it's nice and pure to, to try something you haven't tried before. So here we're going to start with sparkling O. Peach sparkling water naturally flavored with other natural flavors. So that phrase exists on all of these. And because of that, I'm, I'm definitely going to design some merch that says naturally flavored with other natural flavors because that's such a funny phrase. And we all need to be walking around with t-shirts that say that for sure. So um, the sparkling O is funny because it doesn't exist in any store and the label is all wrinkly and the whole thing, it just seems very beta. It just seems like a prototype. But for some reason, it exists. They, there's a Sparkling O Instagram account with zero posts on it. <laughs> like, what is Sparkling O? What is it? Is it an unlaunched sparkling water? I don't know. Let's try this. Peach. Oof, that was no, no carbonation. Very strong peach smell. See, I just said that I like peach more than apricot, so here we go. Okay, so this is more like a Sprite than it is like a uh, LaCroix. So don't call this sparkling water if it's soda, if it's just diet soda. I mean, that is not refreshing. That is just, that leaves you with that bitter coating of aspartame all over your mouth. Yeah, that's a 2 out of 10 because it's just wrong next one this is a sparkling yerba mate from yerbana peach apricot it's both of them Ooh, ooh! don't you love it when you open a can of something and there's like a gentle the foam come it comes out to meet you you know Ooh, that's real nice because that's a really tea forward bitter that has almost no peach or apricot in it. Let's try again. Ooh, that's really nice because it's gently carbonated and it's gently flavored with peach and apricot. And mostly it's like a cold, refreshing green tea, almost like a oolong tea. Wow, the ingredient list is quite interesting. Calendula flowers, organic safflower, organic agave, lemon myrtle. Yeah, it's definitely like a flower tea. I mean, oh, it's so nice. Gentle bitterness, really refreshing, kind of strong black tea flavor. 
Um, big fan. I'm a big fan of this. You know, they have to be losing points because the label doesn't match what's inside at all because there's no peach or apricot in here. Craft brewed in Seattle. So Urbana is a local Seattle thing. This is like an 8 out of 10. It almost tastes more, more than the flesh of a peach or apricot. It almost tastes like stone fruit, you know, like the actual stone. It tastes a little bit like you're sucking on the pit of an apricot. Which is, you know, which means that you've been enjoying an apricot. Unless, you know, unless your older brother finished apricot and gave you the pit, you know. But that's an eight, eight and a half. I'm going to disregard the fact that the label is disharmonious. That's an eight and a half. Last one. LaCroix apricot. can't believe it. there's a LaCroix I haven't tried. <sighs> Good standard LaCroix crack. Gentle apricot smell. Oh, really difficult to have um, the lightest one. This is by far the lightest one. To end it with the with the lightest one, it's like doing a wine flight and first doing like these big body gross Bordeaux's and then at the end of the flight doing like a really, really gentle, really, really expensive, subtle burgundy, you know? Because if you do them in the wrong order like that, then the last one, the burgundy, is really hard to like pick up on the subtleties of the gentle one at the end. You have to start with the gentle one. Because this is tasting like nothing to me. Now I have to readjust my palate to be able to taste anything. Yeah. No, no. Now that the flavors are actually coming to me, it's actually... It's a little bit gross, actually. I don't know what it is with apricot, but it ta it's kind of like... It just tastes like something that's been like in a hot, stuffy room for too long. It just needs needs to be aired out somehow. Man, it's such a nice looking can though. It's such a nice color palette for the LaCroix design. I don't know. This just isn't my favorite. Nice can design, but the, the flavor is like 5 out of 10. What is it? it? It's so interesting that a beverage can taste like... Something fuzzy, weird, soft, gross, moldy apricot skin. I don't know. I, I don't even think apricots are the ones that are um, fuzzy. It's peach. It's peaches, but man, this might be a 4 out of 10, actually. I don't even know where I got this can, honestly. It's weird. Why do I only have one? I must have picked this up at someone's house. All right, let's wrap this up. Let's call it a short little episode like that. Thank you for listening, y'all. Thank you for listening to This Week in Sparkling Water. That was our review of uh, Peach Sparkling Water from Sparkling O, Peach Apricot Sparkling Yerba Mate from Yerbana, and Apricot from LaCroix. Now, I think it's time for me to ask you for a favor. If you don't mind... Would you go on the Apple podcast platform for me and write a review? Review the podcast, you know? I'm that Uber driver asking you for five stars. Yeah. Thank you. And that brings us to our closing segment. Sparkling water, sparkling mind. Again, David Phillips has sent us a little tape here, so uh, let's give it a listen. <laughs> 
A monk asked Joshu, Has a dog Buddha nature? Joshu answered, Mu. In order to master Zen, you must pass the barrier of the patriarchs. To attain this subtle realization, you must completely cut off the way of thinking. If you do not pass the barrier and do not cut off the way of thinking, then you will be like a ghost clinging to the bushes and weeds. Now I want to ask you, what is the barrier of the patriarchs? Why, it is this single word, mu. That is the front gate to Zen. Therefore, it is called the Mumonkan of Zen, the gateless gate. If you want to pass through it, you will not only see Joshu's face, but you will also go hand in hand with the successive patriarchs, entangling your eyebrows with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears. Isn't that a delightful prospect? Wouldn't you like to pass this barrier? Arouse your entire body with its 360 bones and joints and its 84,000 pores of the skin. Summon up a spirit of great doubt and concentrate on this word, mu. Carry it continuously day and night. Do not form a nihilistic conception of vacancy or a relative conception of has or has not. It will be just as if you swallow a red-hot iron ball, which you cannot spit out even if you try. All the illusory ideas and delusive thoughts accumulated up to the present will be exterminated, and when the time comes, internal and external will be spontaneously united. You will know this, but for yourself only, like a dumb man who has had a dream. Then, all of a sudden, an explosive conversion will occur, and you will astonish the heavens and shake the earth. It will be as if you snatch away the great sword of the valiant general Kanu and hold it in your hand. When you meet the Buddha, you kill him. When you meet the patriarchs, you kill them. On the brink of life and death, you command perfect freedom. Among the sixfold worlds and four modes of existence, you enjoy a merry and playful samadhi. Now, I want to ask you again, how will you carry it out? Employ every ounce of your energy to work on this move. If you hold on without interruption, behold, a single spark and the holy candle is lit. <laughs>